With the election of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, there's a lot of talk about firsts. Kamala Harris is the first woman to be elected to the office of the vice president. She's also the first black person elected to the job and the first person of Indian descent. These firsts are only the latest in a long list for her. Though the setting of these new precedents attracts enthusiastic congratulations, we also have to acknowledge that they come with a lot of extra scrutiny. That can be very hard for the trailblazers themselves who literally have no role models to follow. On today's episode, we look at the experience of being among the first of a minority group in an elite space or role. We do so through the work of our Fall 2020 Holtspring Fellow, Mosi Secret. He's currently working on a book that recounts the lives of one of America's most difficult firsts. Being part of the first group of students of color to integrate into elite Southern boarding schools in the 1960s and 70s. Throughout the podcast, we invite Mosi to reflect upon his own experience as part of a black minority at an elite Southern school. And as we do, we wonder, did the experiences of that first generation make it any easier for him in the 1990s or for later generations? Our producer, Tony Andrews, tells the story. Uh, hi, my name is Mosi Secret. I'm an independent journalist based in Brooklyn, New York. Mosi's reporting on one of the lesser-known battlegrounds of the civil rights era. In the late 1960s and early 1970s, there remained, let's say, 20 private schools across the South that were all white, despite integration efforts that had happened in public schools around the country. And there was a woman, a wealthy woman, uh, whose name was Anne Forsyth, who had this vision of integrating these schools. The organization she was part of, the Stouffer Foundation, had two broad goals. First, to expose white elites to students of color with the hope of making them more tolerant. The second was to find talented children of color, initially mostly black kids, to give them scholarships and the opportunity to really excel in life. And so she gathered a group of people who toured the South to find really super performing uh, black students in the beginning and then eventually students of other backgrounds to go to these schools. When you get books and things out of the libraries, what subjects do you like reading? This is audio mostly obtained from interviews conducted with students being considered for the Stouffer Foundation's program. In this case, a black student named Armand is being asked about his interests. Um, mostly aeronautics. Aeronautics? Yes. Yeah. I don't even know how to spell that. <laughs> aeronautics. And what are aer aeronautics? I don't really know what they um, are. It's about the study of space and exploration and um, vastness of space. Uh -huh. Things like that. Once the kids were selected, 140 of them would be among the first children of color ever to go to these schools during a very difficult time in history. They said they were there to protest the war, poverty, racism, and other social ills. Some of them were also determined to provoke a confrontation. This program started in 1967 and went through the mid-70s. 1967 was coming off of a very tumultuous time in the United States. There were riots in cities across the country, mostly in response to police brutality. Mayor Richard Daley vowed to keep it peaceful, even if it took force to keep the peace. He was backed by 12,000 police, 5,000 National Guardsmen, 
7,500 regular army troops. The following spring, Martin Luther King was assassinated, and there were assassinations throughout that period. Eyewitnesses to the assassination say that Dr. King left his room, 306, at the Lorraine Hotel just before dinner to get some air. He walked over to the railing at this spot. And so it was just like a period of intense upheaval. In 68, there was also a presidential election in which George Wallace, kind of an open racist, was also competing. So these students were kind of going into these schools at a tough time. And so many of them did meet hostility from the white students who were there. What did you think about the riots when they were rioting around the country? Were you pretty happy about that or sad or did it not bother you one way or another? Well, the riots... I wasn't too happy about them because the people were getting killed and they were fighting for a cause, but no one ever looked their way to help them. In this polarized political climate, the experiment had different results for different students. According to Mosi, the paths in life they took can be divided into roughly three categories. The first contained those who became very successful. Of the 140 students who were in this program, there were 10 or 15 to 20 valedictorians or, or people who graduated the first in their class. And so many of those students would go on to be the first students at their respective Ivy League or kind of elite Southern colleges and would be the first black people in corporate America or in various hospitals. The second group was slightly less successful, but would still go on to live a version of the American dream. There were people who were just kind of average, who you know had a normal, well-adjusted high school career. Mosi says about half of the students belonged to the overachiever first category, a third belonged to the average group, and the remainder, well, they took what Mosi describes as a wrong turn. There were also people who I found who really fell off. Who either fell into addiction. There was one really surprising interview that I had with somebody who was living in, he was basically squatting in a garage behind an abandoned house with electricity run to his garage from the house. He was in a wheelchair and he was blind. It was like, as soon as I saw him, I was starting to call his friends just to like make sure everyone knew what condition he was in because it seemed like, to me, unlivable conditions. There's another guy who I know about who went on, he, w he went to a school in Alabama called Indian Springs, and from there he went to Rice University, and then he went on to the Army, where he was an intelligence officer. But he suffered from some type of kind of undefined mental health problems ever since his high school. And he, after his Army career, moved back to the States and killed this woman who he was dating and was convicted of killing her. And in the court transcripts of his case, there are mentions of the fact how this high school experience, something about this high school experience changed him.
Though the trajectories that the students took are in some cases dramatically different, Mosi says there is one factor that was a common driver in all the outcomes. I think it's worth saying that what led to their success is in some ways the same thing that led to the downfall of others, and that is this incredible pressure that they faced. And it's, it's just kind of how they responded to it that led to these various outcomes. And so the, the pressure that these, that these students faced was that they knew that if they did not perform well, then the white students who they were interacting with would have this sense that all black people were underperforming. This is a feeling that anyone from a minority in elite environments can relate to. Pressure to represent their entire group. Mosi says he can relate to it too because he also went to a private school in the South. I went to public elementary and middle school in Atlanta. And in middle school began to test well. And when you test well, you start to get these various kinds of opportunities. And one of them was this program called A Better Chance. And so through this program, I came to go to a school in Atlanta called Paideia, which was founded in the 70s by some progressives. And when he says progressive, he's not kidding. I say progressive, but it was really founded by hippies. So we would call our teachers by their first names. We would have these weird classes. Like I remember a class that I took on dreams, just kind of do these kind of interesting electives. He was part of only 10 to 12% of students who were black. That's already a much larger proportion than the kids in the Stouffer experiment. But Mosi says this allowed him to feel a connection to that first generation of pioneers. Even though these students in the Stouffer Foundation program went to different schools than I did, I still felt like they were my forebears. They had opened the doors that I would later enter. Having been a person of color at a private school myself, I know there are a lot of us in this story. <laughs> I heard that kind of statement quite often among minorities, that previous generations were their forebears. Well, that's what our story is about today. I wondered to what extent is that true? Did one generation's experiences, and to be honest, did their suffering make it easier for the next? To do so, we took a few typical school experiences from both generations and compared them to see if things improved or were different in any way. The first experience we consider, anxiety that a student faces about the first day in a new school. Um, I don't think I'm going to make it to prep school, but... This is another section of Armand's interview, He's wondering what his first day would be like. I would like to know if I do make it, will any other boys be going? Any other black boys? Yes. You can hear there's some unease in his voice, possibly about, you know, feeling alone. Mosi tells us another example, too. There's a guy named Gilbert Prince who left public school in Atlanta for a school called the Asheville School. And he told me a story about his first day where he was going to pick up his books and walked under a porch. And someone spit on his head as he was walking under this porch. And, and, and he kind of talked about other racist incidents that followed this and, and how difficult it was for him to make this transition from a mostly black town to this outwardly racist environment. So in that one case, there was uncertainty about being part of a minority 
starting out as an automatic outsider. In another, that anxiety is justified because the student ends up being harassed. And fast forward 20 years, and Mosi has a very different experience on his first day. I was so welcomed, like they, I, I felt so wanted that I didn't have any thoughts of, you know, what if this doesn't work out? It wouldn't have been a part of my thinking for there to have been this kind of racial representation element because that's just not how, that's just not how it was at that time. So that's the first comparison. By the second generation, it was possible for the first day anxiety of a black student to not include race at all. Of course, Mosi is just one example, but one quite telling example considering that most, if not all, the recordings I heard featured students expressing some level of unease about being the very first of their group. Okay, let's move on to another formative high school experience, sports. Jim, oh, are you black, Jim? Yes. Is that called phys ed in some schools? It's called physical education here. Mm-hmm. Do you get good marks with that? Yes. Sports are notorious for being the source of a lot of high school drama. As you might expect, the Stouffer kids had more than their fair share. Armand Clark describes during his freshman year going to a football game against a local high school in Georgia. And he remembers it being his first trip back home. They were the only blacks of the game and the, and the white boys all had these military style crew cuts. And he remembers going to the concession stand during a break to get some food and, and these two or three white girls standing behind him. And another of his classmates who was also black and, and, and taunting them with this old song, Eeny, meeny, miny, mo, catch an inward by the toe. And again, Mosi had a very different experience just a generation later. So I was a cross-country runner and a track runner and had only positive experiences. One of my best memories is that I made it to the state championships, I think it was my senior year, and at Paideia there was a pep rally in which basically the whole school, Paideia is a K-12 through school, gathered in the auditorium to like with signs and things like that to kind of cheer me on. Um, like specifically so, Gomosi? Specifically Gomosi, yeah. I had a lot of support that tracked me. So not only was the violence that the first generation experienced absent by the 1990s, the opposite was true. It had become possible for an entire school to express adoration for someone like Mosi. Okay, let's think about one last arena of typical teenage anxiety, dating. Mosi recounts an incident that happened to a student named Carol Eccles. She tells me a story about how at, at the neighboring school, Christ Church, there were two African guys, two African immigrant, immigrant students, and it was just assumed that she would date one of those students, and then when she didn't like them, that she, was, she had no options. Here as well, Mosi's school life was different. He says there was no expectation that he would only date black girls. I won't say specifically that the student at the Stoker Foundation and others like them made it so that my experience would be so easy, but the time was just very different, and the things that they dealt with were unacceptable. Outward racism was unacceptable. There might be more subtle things that were happening, but not those kinds of slurs that they were facing. And that's the summary of what Mosi settles on in our interview. Overt racism was much more infrequent by the time he went to school, but that didn't mean that everything was rosy for him. 
I ask him if he can remember experiencing any problems with racism, and he kind of struggles to remember. Does anything come to mind? There would be things um, that that happened. I'm trying to think. There's something else that Nisha has told me about that I often forget about. The person he's referring to here is Nisha Simama, his former guidance counselor, who he was very close to. Yeah, she might be able to tell. There was there was one teacher who did something to me that I didn't like. When we asked him about his experience at Padea, he literally couldn't remember them, but he mentioned that you remembered some of them. So we wanted to find out if you could shed some light on that, please. Well, I think that he couldn't remember them mostly because he probably didn't know about them. I remember... She tells the story of Mosi trying to take an unconventional approach to learning a subject. He ended up not being allowed to do so because, according to Nisha, the teacher of that subject didn't trust that Mosi was smart enough to make it work. Nisha chalks this up not quite to racism, but at least to a racial bias. Yeah, I think that there is a bias about African-American students, particularly black males. I think that there is a sense that, that the school is too hard for many of them. What's striking about this incident is, of course, that Mosi can't remember it, or incidents like it. In fact, his overall memory of the school is generally overwhelmingly good. If you had to summarize your entire school uh, or, or time at Padilla career, Maybe in like three words, what would you what would you say? It was really positive. I had a great time at Paideia. Um, race was not a big part of it in a negative way. His relationship is so positive with the school that he regularly stays in contact with faculty and alumni. He's even been invited back to speak to students a few times. I gave a talk about this work that I'm doing here for a writer series that they have. I've been a part of a panel discussion on journalism. And there were talks of bringing me back again to deal with some kind of racial issues they're, they're having. Prosecutors say Officer Derek Chauvin had his knee on George Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. No After the death of George Floyd and the protests that swept the country, there were a lot of social media movements in which people in various sectors of American society were calling out racism or what they perceived as racism. I remember stuff was happening in publishing, stuff was happening in, in, in a lot of elite schools. And so on Instagram, there are a lot of these black at school name accounts that popped up. Hey guys, so I usually post like makeup and fashion-related videos, but this video is a bit different. In this video, I'm just going to be telling you guys my experience going to a predominantly white school. I just want to give you guys my perception of what it's like to be black at a private school. And one of them popped up at Paideia. It turned into kind of a big deal. It made the, the local press because Paideia has a reputation for being the progressive school, and this is a uh, problem that shouldn't be happening at the progressive school. So it got a little bit of news coverage and led to a lot of upset among alumni. And there were, you know, Zoom calls with 200 alumni who wanted to address this problem. And there have been meetings. The Instagram channel was filled with anonymous posts by current and former students of color who cited incidents of racism that they encountered at the school. 
I ask Mosi to read out a few, and some are quite blatant. On page one, second, in the middle, on the left. When I was in high school, a group of students got caught stealing and reselling textbooks to the Emory Bookstore. The black kid got expelled, the white kid got suspended and was provided work so he wouldn't fall behind. And some are more subtle. As a black kid in a predominantly white school, I feel alone. I feel unheard. I feel uncomfortable. Too many racist jokes are thrown up in the air by white students, male and female, while everyone either brushes over it or defends them. From past experiences, students have made me feel as if I don't belong here. And others are just nakedly cruel. Being one of only six black people in fifth grade, my teacher asked me to look around at my classmates and ask myself, if you belong here. So when you see these arrayed in front of you, what, what do you feel? This whole thing was pretty painful for me and for my friends because we have pretty fond memories of the school and connections to the school. And it was shocking to hear that these problems might be going on. How do you square that with your summary of your school time, which is, I had a pretty great time? Both of those things seem to be true at the same time. These kids have had these experiences and you had a great time. Mm -hmm. does, does that sort of tell you that, that you just objectively had a better time and didn't have as hard a time as they did? Or is it also possible that you bracketed away the bad things that happened to you in order to focus on the positives? Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a tricky question because it's it's difficult. I don't want to speak. I don't want to speak to someone else's experience and, and whatever pain or discomfort they may have felt. And I certainly don't want to be in the position of saying it was justified or not justified. You can hear that he's especially cautious about not invalidating anyone's experience. He finally concludes with the following: the problems that. I came across at Paideia, I was equipped to handle in such a and the problems that I came across at Paideia were not deeply hurtful. I don't I don't know what's happening now. I mean that's why it was so shocking. But I I, I don't know what's happening now. But I I'm not sure it's as simple as white kids at Paideia are more racist than they used to be. Mosi's answer seems to assume fundamental differences in the way the generations respond to challenges. But that doesn't take a key point into consideration. How do you square that then with the fact that some of these quotes are from people in your generation? Yeah. I would say one of them is. Yeah, but let's just say that, you know, that means, there are it, perhaps that means more, it, yeah. at least one. I mean, again, you know, if there are 50 black people in the high school, there are going to be a diversity of experiences. And my experience certainly does not speak to all of them. I was a special Padilla student. You know, I recognize that I was very well liked by my teachers and by my peers. And so there were experiences that I probably wouldn't have had because of my position in the school. And so I'm not saying that, I want to be very careful about saying that, that my experience was not reflective of most people's. It was my own experience and everyone has their own, has, has theirs. But if I were to kind of guess, I think that there are some generational differences in the way that these, these things are handled. At this point, I should say that Mosi really is an especially even-keeled individual. As a journalist, he's careful to weigh his words exactly and to avoid hyperbole. 
So I definitely believe him when he says he really didn't perceive much in the way of racism. But as we talk, I wonder if that perception is not only an expression of his personality and nature, but also part of an active choice he made not to let himself become a quote-unquote angry black man. You know, just in terms of my general disposition on campus, I didn't want to be angry, but I don't know if that, you know, that, that, that perhaps grows from certain kind of family dynamics. Mosey says he took on this disposition after observing his father, who experienced much more than I did in terms of racial hostility, carried around a lot of animosity for a long time. And so my not wanting to have the animosity was in some ways, it wasn't as if I didn't want to be an angry, angry black man in general. It's just I saw my father and kind of what it did to him, and I didn't want to have to carry around that burden. Here again, we see the previous generation's survival strategies influencing those of the next. What unites all these generations is that they all had to find something, some way of dealing emotionally with the daily trials of racism. We're in a reevaluating everything time. That's Nisha, Mosi's former guidance counselor again. She explains the differences in experiences by talking about how especially heightened our awareness of race at this particular moment is. You know, we've got COVID, we've got black people dying in the United States at an unprecedented rate. We have police shootings. We have a president who gaslights every single racial issue. So people are just really, really, uh, and particularly black people, are in a very, very um, pained period. Do you ever pay attention to what the newspaper has to say about the world, Greg? Yes, and I, and I sure don't like it. Um, police, but shoot, shooting police with it. They that really loved me was when that policeman shot one of Mr. Peters, you know, um, how he shot him, reaching his pocket. The policeman thought he was going to get a weapon and just shot him dead. What's, what do you reckon we're going to do with all these policemen we got? We got some other policemen, huh? I think that the policemen should have certain abilities, you know, for them to be able to do. But I don't think that robbing a store would be worth, I don't think that if they rob, if somebody robs a store, I don't think they should get the capital punishment for it. What would you say is the difference amongst the generations? So the first generation was harsher, but it was exclusionary as well. And the or, current generation? Current generation would experience the micros somebody touching your hair, somebody saying you like rap music, somebody saying that you don't act like a black person, you seem different. Is that easier? You know, <laughs> I think it's much easier to deal with than to have somebody grow up like my parents did. But it doesn't make it hurt less. But it doesn't make it hurt less. It hurts. It hurts. Having gone through all this material, I'm left wondering how we should think about integration in these kinds of private elite schools. I mentioned at the beginning 
that the Stouffer experiment had two goals. One was to make white elites more tolerant through exposure. On that front, a 1977 research paper could not find, quote, reliable evidence for the program's success or failure, unquote. But what about the second goal of giving outstanding children of color a leg up? That was one area of clear success, wasn't it? Academically, most students of color did do very well. But Mosi thinks the story is more complicated than just academics. These programs also have a way of elevating super talented black, brown, Native American students, kind of contributing to this idea of post-racialism. And by that, I mean people kind of thinking that we've moved, that American society has moved beyond race because there are people who are performing so well that clearly there are no longer any barriers. But just because some people kind of can succeed in the system that is in place doesn't necessarily mean the system is not flawed. And so the success of a few people really serves to mask a much more vast number of people who are not doing well and who are not being kind of funneled into these programs. And it is often the case that those people, they're also told that their various situations are entirely their fault and not the result of any structural causes because they are not performing as well as, as, well as those of us who went to private schools and things like that. Those seem to be huge byproducts of elite integration in private schools, blame and pressure. As the Stouffer experiment shows, one's ability to thrive as part of an elite minority will be determined by how one deals with those two things. Do you find the idea of black excellence to be a burden sometimes? Like you, your, the idea that you have to be excellent all the time, is, is that a burden sometimes? No, I don't, I don't find it to be a burden. Um, because the things that I'm doing are the things I want to be doing. I'm not doing it for anybody else. I'm doing it for myself and because I want to do them. I've always wanted to do them. I, I might be perceived as an exceptional black person, and perhaps I even am one, but my reasons for doing that are not outward. They are my own. And that's it for this episode of Beyond the Lecture. You can listen to more of our interviews with American Academy fellows and distinguished visitors on our website, americanacademy.de. There, you can also read the latest from the American Academy's Berlin Journal, watch recent lecture videos, and connect with the Academy on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. This episode was produced and narrated by Tony Andrews with help from Denise Gammon. I'm your host, RJ McGill, from the American Academy in Berlin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>